Section 15 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 5, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary, Chapter 3, Part 1. An auspicious change took place in the situation of Mary a few months after the sixth marriage of her father. Although her restoration to her natural place in the succession was not complete, yet the crown was entailed on her after Prince Edward, or any son or daughter which Henry might have by his wife Catherine Parr, or any succeeding wives, by Act of Parliament, passed February 7, 1544. Mary assisted, ten days afterwards, at a grand court held by the queen, her stepmother, for the reception of the Duke de Najara, a Spanish grandee of the highest rank, whose secretary has preserved minute particulars of the ceremonial. When the noble Spaniard had been presented to the queen, he essayed to perform his homage to the Princess Mary by kissing her hand, but she prevented him, and very graciously offered him her lips, a proof that he was her relative, and privileged thus to salute her. Mary danced at a court ball given on the same occasion. Her dress was extremely splendid, being a kirtle, or a close-fitting undergown, made of cloth of gold, over which was worn an open robe of three-piled violet velvet. A coronal of large precious stones completed this brilliant costume. Her magnificence of attire, and her public appearance at the reception of a grandee, who was the accredited agent of Charles V, may be considered as the effects of her restoration to royal rank. The Spanish secretary of the Duke de Najara wrote that Mary was pleasing in person, and so popular in England, as to be almost adored. Among other praises that I heard of her, adds he, is that she knows how to conceal her acquirements, and surely this is no small proof of wisdom. Either the religious prejudices of Mary were not so invincible as have been supposed, or the influence of Catherine Parr was indeed extraordinary, for, by the entreaty of that queen, she undertook the translation of the Latin paraphrase of St. John by Erasmus. The original, which comprehended all the Gospels, was a work very precious to those who wished for reformation in the Christian Church, founded on a more intimate knowledge of Scripture. But, like Scripture itself, the luminous paraphrases by Erasmus were locked, in a learned language, from the approach of general readers. It was the erudition and industry of the Princess Mary that rendered into English the whole of the important paraphrase of St. John. She meant to have labored further in the good work, when a recurrence of her chronic illness laid her once more on a bed of sickness, and her chaplain, Dr. Francis Mallet, revised and prepared for the press the manuscript she had completed. It was comprised in the same volume with the other paraphrases of Erasmus, which were rendered into English by several celebrated reformers. Those who mistake Henry the Eighth for a patron of the Reformation, instead of what he really was, and still continues to be, its impediment, its shame, and its sorrow, have supposed that Mary undertook this task, to please and propitiate her father. But that such a course was not the way to his good graces, is apparent, from the anger which was excited in his mind against Catherine Parr, on account of the theological works patronized by her, anger which had nearly been fatal to that queen, soon after the publication of these paraphrases. 
Mary's translation, therefore, must have been undertaken wholly to please Catherine Parr, who, in her letter from Hanworth, September 1544, entreated her to get her translation of St. John, with all care and diligence, revised, and then with speed, to send this, her most fair and useful work, to her, that she might with the rest, namely, the translations of Kay, Cox, Udall, Old, and Allen, commit it to the press, desiring withal to know of her, whether it should be published in her name or anonymously. Catherine Parr added on this point, that in her opinion she would do a wrong to the work, if she should refuse to send it to posterity with the advantage of her name, because in her accurate translation she had gone through much pains for the public good, and would have undertaken more, had her health permitted. I see not why you should reject the praise which all deservedly would give you, yet I leave all to your own prudence, and will approve of that which seems best to you. Mary did not append her name to her translation, but she permitted Dr. Udall to say what he pleased, concerning her labors, in his preface, which was to the following effect. England, he said, can never be able to render thanks sufficient, so it will never be able, as her deserts require, enough to praise the most noble, the most virtuous, and the most studious, Lady Mary's grace, for taking such pains and travail in translating this paraphrase of Erasmus on the Gospel of St. John. Dr. Mallet, who superintended the progress of this work through the press, could not have been long in the service of the Princess Mary, having been chaplain to the late unfortunate Queen Catherine Howard. He was highly esteemed by Catherine Parr for his deep learning. His principles appear to have been mild and liberal, if he may be judged by his cooperation with some of the fathers of the Reformation, in a work of general Christian utility. The persecution and severe imprisonment he met with in the succeeding reign, did not, perhaps, encourage him in this happy frame of mind, since his name occurs in Fox's list of persecutors a solitary instance among the personal friends of Mary, who are almost all excluded from that black catalogue. The manuscript, which has been preserved, of the Princess Mary's privy purse expenditure, closes in the year 1544. It has afforded a curious insight into her real manner of spending her time, her tastes and pursuits. Among other remarkable points, it shows how small a portion of her means was bestowed on any of the prevalent devotional observances of the times. If she had been inclined to spend her income on attentions to the dead, instead of active charity to the living, she might have done so with impunity, as the masses for the soul of her friend, Queen Jane Seymour, indubitably prove that such rites still form part of the then-established church. But no other expenditure of the kind occurs, and, with the exception of a yearly trifle offered at Candlemas, the expenses of Mary might have passed for those of a Protestant princess. Many items occur in the course of this diary, which bespeak her love of flowers, rare seeds, and roots. She was a horticulturist and an importer of foreign plants, for her father gave her ten pounds in reward to a person, because he had brought safely to England many trees from Spain, commissioned by his daughter, the Lady Mary's Grace. She had a decided taste for clocks, like her illustrious relative, Charles V, for they form a prominent article in her yearly expenditure. Sometimes she had as many as four repaired and regulated at once, 
sometimes she gave and received presents of clocks gloves were sent from spain as presents she gave a gentleman in the suite of the lord admiral thirty shillings for bringing her from a duchess in spain a coffer containing twelve pair of spanish gloves gloves of this kind bore a great price as late as the middle of the last century and were probably some of the relics of moorish industry they were made of exquisite leather and embroidered with silk gold silver and even with gems and highly perfumed the wicked suspicions of that age of crime often supposed that the perfumes of spanish gloves were poisoned painting was not one of the arts encouraged by mary while princess owing to her slender finances but she paid john hayes handsomely for drawing her work patterns and gave one john four pounds who drew her likeness on a table that is it was a portrait painted on wood there is a good portrait by holbein in the collection at hampton court representing a princess about the age of twenty-four supposed rather too hastily to be elizabeth the outline of the face is wholly different from the pear-shaped form of elizabeth's visage instead of which it is short and round and though sufficiently regular to excuse the praises of mary's person which formed the constant theme of her contemporaries in her youth shows a slight indication of the squareness of her upper lip which was afterwards so violently caricatured in the prints executed in the reign of her successor if other tokens were wanting to identify it the costume is sufficient which had materially changed before elizabeth had attained the age of the person represented the color of the hair was occasioned the mistake which is of a red cast of auburn when it is probable that mary had the dark hair as well as the dark eyes of her spanish mother but most of the portraits of that era are embellished with red or sandy hair it is supposed that out of compliment to the rufous complexion of henry the eighth the locks of his dutiful courtiers were sprinkled with gold dust or red powder in order that those who had not been gifted by nature with the warm hue fashionable at court might at least have the appearance of possessing that enviable tint holbein's genuine works have a very deceptive quality leading the beholder into much false criticism on his stiffness and hardness the laborious finish of the flesh and draperies induces those who look at his pictures to examine them as near as possible and the closer they are surveyed the flatter they appear but let the spectator walk into the middle of the room and the picture assumes a marvellous effect of roundness and vraisemblance thus it is with the famous group of henry the eighth and family which is one of the treasures of hampton court on a close inspection it seems as flat as a map and as highly finished as an enamelled teacup but as the spectator retreats from it and looks at it from the centre of the room the pillars move into panoramic perspective the recess deepens the glorious roof glows with lozenges of ruby and gold the canopy juts out and the royal group beneath assume lifelike semblance thus it is with the young portrait of mary if it is viewed from the window seat to the right its effect is full of nature and reality the face is delicate and pleasing the complexion pale and pure the fragile figure shows the ravages of recent illness the expression of the features is mild and reflective and the whole design gives the idea of a lady student engaged in peaceful meditation a book with vellum leaves is on a stand to the right and the princess holds another velvet bound and clasped with gold in her hands 
the fluted curtains partially open from the background these accessories holbein has finished with flemish patience the book on the stand appears as if the studious princess had recently been writing therein her dress is in form color and texture exactly resembling that of queen anne boleyn at the louvre it is square at the bust tapered in the waist girded with the cordeliere of gems and made of rose-colored damask the headdress is of the round hood form mary according to the italian of polino was small fragile and of a singular beautiful complexion but of a very different tint from that of her father when a girl she was much celebrated for her beauty but the troubles she underwent in her father's reign faded her charms prematurely though she was very far from being ugly her face was short her forehead very large her eyes dark and lustrous and remarkably touching when she fixed them on any one the portrait engraved by halbrocken with an axe facies and a mourning cupid entitled queen catherine howard is indubitably the princess mary about the age of thirty it is nearly a facsimile in features dress and attitude with her portrait in the family group at hampton court only at a more advanced age the tone of the privy purse journal of the princess altered considerably when catherine parr presided over the english court all card-playing and betting vanished from the pages of this document but in the preceding year mary had lost the sum of ten pounds in a bet with dr bill a divine so-called was distinguished among the fathers of the protestant church of england in the reign of edward the sixth but whether he is the same to whom the princess mary had lost the wager is a curious question such an incident is much at variance with all preconceived ideas of the gloom and unbending sternness of mary's routine of life as it would have been in the primitive simplicity of that of dr bill if one could see a grand inquisitor playing at dice or betting at a horse-race with calvin or john knox the sight would scarcely be more startling and anomalous than the plain item in the account-book of mary noting cash thus won and lost strange indeed are the revelations when a sudden flash of light affords a transitory view into the realities of life just at the commencement of the great religious warfare which has raged since this period the mind is tantalized with an earnest wish to know more of the private life and daily mode of conduct of those who are only known to the world as persecutors on one side or as martyrs or theological champions on the other vain is the wish the struggles of rival creeds for supremacy take the place of all other information either personal or statistical individual character arts science and even the historian's absorbing theme arms are alike a blank in the annals of the reigns of henry the eighth edward the sixth and mary yet all were undergoing changes as striking as those of religion in this dearth of general information assiduous examination of the documents which time and accident have spared becomes a more imperative duty the remaining leaves of the book containing the accounts of the princess mary are filled up with the list of her jewels many interesting marginal notices in her own hand are added to it the jewels were placed in the care of mary finch and at the bottom of every page is the signature of the princess and on each side of it four long scratches to prevent any more writing being added 
among these jewels was a book of gold with the king's face and that of her grace's mother catherine of aragon this is retained in mary's possession but the next article a round tablet black enamelled with the king's picture and that of queen jane was given by mary as a present to mrs ryder at her marriage with judge brown a pomander of gold having a dial in it was given to the lady elizabeth's grace this must have been a watch another item occurs of a plain tablet of gold with a dial in it given to lady kingston among mary's valuables were miniature paintings set in brooches and tablets evidently meant to be worn on the person their subjects were mostly from scripture history but one given to the princess elizabeth had on it the history of pyramus and thisbe the king presented his daughter with a considerable number of jewels the first of january fifteen forty three and six months before his death the twentieth of july he presented her with so many that it may be supposed they were her mother's jewels among them occurs another miniature of catherine of aragon set with one of the king opening like a book of gold against one gold necklace set with pearls mary has written given to my cousin jane gray little thinking when she gave her young kinswoman a share of her ornaments that the fair neck would be mangled by her order round which these pearls were clasped many rich presents were distributed by mary among her female relations the names of lady frances mother of lady jane gray lady eleanor clifford and lady margaret douglas married to matthew stuart earl of lennox frequently occur familiarly named as my cousin francis eleanor or margaret mary had been suffering with severe illness in the early part of fifteen forty six and was in the spring at the court of her stepmother a letter is extant from her brother prince edward dated from hunsdon february twenty ninth fifteen forty six in which he congratulates her affectionately on her recovery affirming that god had given her the wisdom of esther and that he looked up to her virtues with admiration he desires her to give his love to lady turwit lady lane and to lady herbert these were ladies of queen catherine's household and the last her sister circumstances which prove that mary was then resident at court mary retained her father's favor to the close of his existence though just as he was on the verge of the grave her name was strangely implicated in the mysterious offences for which the accomplished surrey was hurried to the block general history repeats perpetually that surrey's principal crime was an intention of aspiring to the hand of the princess mary his own family history however proves that this was impossible for his hand was already given to a wife whom he tenderly loved and who survived him many years henry the eighth in his will confirmed mary in her reversionary rights of succession and bequeathed to her the sum of ten thousand pounds towards her marriage portion if she married with the consent of the council of regency while she continued unmarried she was to enjoy an income of three thousand pounds per annum which it appears arose from the rents of her manors of new hall or beaulieu hunsdon and kenning hall this last was part of the illegal plunder of the noble houses of howard which she honestly returned on her accession to its rightful owner the silence of all english writers regarding any communication between henry the eighth and his eldest daughter when he was on his deathbed 
obliges us to have recourse to the testimony of continental historians and to translate the following passage from the italian apollino one day when the king felt convinced that his death was approaching he ordered his daughter mary to be sent for he addressed her with great tenderness and affection and said i know well my daughter that fortune has been most adverse to you that i have caused you infinite sorrow and that i have not given you in marriage as i desired to do this was however according to the will of god or to the unhappy state of my affairs or to your own ill luck but i pray you take it all in good part and promise me to remain as a kind and loving mother to your brother whom i shall leave a little helpless child it is very probable that mary actually made her father such promise because in all the stormy movements of the succeeding reign though it will be presently shown that snares and temptations were not wanting to induce her to seize the reins of government she never gave either secretly or openly the least encouragement to any rebellion against the successive regents who governed in her brother's name happy if she could preserve her own home from molestation which was not always the case her brother's first employment on his extension was to write her from the tower a latin letter of condolence on their father's death replete with as much personal affection to herself as the stiffness of a scholastic composition would permit the princess lived in retirement at her country seats in the ensuing spring the great changes which took place in religion immediately after the decease of henry the eighth had as yet produced no collision between her and the protector somerset the following letters bespeak her terms of great familiarity and friendship both with him and his wife the princess married to my lady of somerset april fifteen forty seven my good gossip after my very hearty commendations to you with like desire to hear of amendment and increase of your good health these shall be to put you in remembrance of mine old suit concerning richard wood who was my mother's servant when you were one of her grace's maids as you know by his application he hath sustained great loss almost to his utter undoing without any recompense hitherto which forced me to trouble you with his suit before whereof i thank you i had a very good answer and desire you now to renew the same to my lord your husband for i consider it impossible for him to remember such matters having such a heap of business as he hath wherefore i heartily require you to go forward in this suit till you have brought it to an honest end for the poor man is not able to abide long in the city and thus my good nan i trouble you with myself and all mine thanking you with all my heart for your earnest gentleness towards me in all my suits hitherto reckoning myself out of doubt of the continuance of the same wherefore once again i must trouble you with my poor george brickhouse who was an officer of my mother's wardrobe and beds from the time of the king my father's coronation whose only desire is to be one of the knights of windsor if all the rooms be not filled and if they be to have the next reversion in obtaining whereof in mine opinion you shall do a charitable deed as knoweth almighty god who sent you good health and us shortly meet to his pleasure from st john's this sunday in the afternoon being the twenty-fourth of april your loving friend during my life mary 
Mary's requests for provision for her mother's aged servants were duly remembered by her good Nan. For, some months later, a letter of thanks in her hand occurs to the protector. The Princess Mary to the Protector. My Lord, I heartily thank you for your gentleness, showed touching my request late made unto you, whereof I have been advertised by my comptroller, and though I shall leave, or omit, to trouble you at present with the whole number of my said requests, yet I thought it good to signify to you my desire for those persons who have served me a very long time, and have no kind of living certain, praying you, my lord, according to your gentle promise, that they may have pensions, as my other servants have, during their lives, for their years be so far past that I fear they shall not enjoy them long. Thus, with my hearty commendations, as well to yourself as to my gossip, your wife, I bid you both farewell, praying Almighty God to send you both as much health and comfort of soul and body as I would wish myself. From Beaulieu, the 28th of December. Your assured friend to my power, Mary. In June, Lord Thomas Seymour wrote to her, requesting her sanction to his marriage with her friend and stepmother, Catherine Parr. Her letter has already been given. It is sensibly written, though somewhat prudishly worded, disowning all knowledge in wooing matters, and she evidently insinuates that a six months widowhood is rather too short for the widow of a king of England, though perhaps Mary knew, as well as the parties themselves, that they were already married. The princess dated her letter from Wanstead, and soon after she notified to Catherine Parr that she was about to try the heir of Norfolk for the restoration of her infirm health, and from that time she sojourned frequently at her manor of Kenning Hall. She required the attendance of her chamberwoman, Jane, during an attack of illness that seized her in the autumn. This damsel had given her hand to William Russell, a servant in the household of her sister, on which occasion Mary received the following familiar letter from the Princess Elizabeth. We find, by its contents, that it is one of a numerous and affectionate series, which passed between the royal sisters at this period of their lives. From the Princess Elizabeth to the Princess Mary. To my well-beloved sister Mary. Good sister, as to hear of your sickness is unpleasant to me, so it is nothing fearful, for that I understand it is your old guest, that is wont oft to visit you, whose coming, though it be oft, yet it is never welcome, but notwithstanding it is comfortable, for that yacula provisa minus feriunt. As I do understand your need of Jane Russell's service, so I am sorry that it is by my man's occasion leaded or hindered, which, if I had known afore, I would have caused his will to give place to need of your service, for, as it is her duty to obey his commandment, so it is his part to attend your pleasure, and as I confess it were meet for him to go to her, since she attends upon you, so indeed he required the same, but for divers of his fellows had business abroad that made his tarrying at home. Good sister, though I have good cause to thank you for your off-sending to me, yet I have more occasion to thank you for your off-gentle writing, and you may see by my writing so oft how pleasant it is to me. And thus I end to trouble you, desiring God to send you as well to do as you can think or wish, or I desire or pray. 
from ash ridge scribbled this twenty seventh of october your loving sister elizabeth the will of henry the eighth was as replete with seeds of strife for his subjects as the capricious acts of his life had been this monarch who had on the suppression of the monasteries desecrated so many altars and scattered the funds of so many mortuary chapels and endowed chantries in utter disregard of the intentions of the founders whose very tombs were often violated left by his will six hundred pounds per annum for masses to be said for his soul he had likewise enjoined his executors to bring up his son in the catholic faith but this he probably meant the cruel church of the six articles which he had founded this will was a serious impediment to the protestant church of england for the establishment of which somerset and cranmer took decided steps directly henry expired before the parliament met in november bishop gardiner the chief supporter of henry's anti-papal catholic church was deprived of his see and imprisoned in the fleet sometime in the same autumn a controversy by letter took place between the princess mary and somerset which appears to have been commenced by her earnest entreaties for the performance of her father's will especially that part which related to the education of her brother somerset's answer to the princess is alone preserved it contains assertions regarding the protestant principles and intentions of henry the eighth wholly contradicted by facts far wiser would it have been for the protestant protector to have boldly founded his opposition on the obvious truth and argued on the inconsistency of henry's testimony and his deeds but somerset like most politicians sacrificed the majesty of truth to expediency which conduct of course involved him in a labyrinth of disputation and self-contradiction in the course of the correspondence that ensued between somerset and bishop gardiner on the same subject a remarkable fact appears which is that the paraphrases of erasmus among which the translation by the princess mary held so conspicuous a place was reprinted by the founders of our protestant church and was provided in all churches throughout england as a companion to the bible being considered next in efficacy to the sacred volume itself for the promotion of the reformed faith it likewise appears that gardiner's attack on this very work was the ultimate cause of his imprisonment mary's connection with this publication forms a singular incident in the history of this controversy and indeed in her own career thus did mary's opposition to the protestant church of england commence at the very moment that the church was taking for one of its bulwarks the work of her own pen End of section 15